According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text this morning is from Proverbs 18, Proverbs 18 and verse 19. Last week, we looked at verses 16, 17, and 18 and covered three verses in one hour. I thought that was amazing. So uh, we'll slow down today and just look at one verse. As far as verse 19 is concerned, because there's a lot there. And and really, uh, we are approaching the end of the chapter, 24 verses here, and we'll be in chapter 19 before you know it. But there is uh, there's a lot to, to deal with in verse 19, especially in our culture, because uh, it, t- it starts off with a brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city. And we live in a day and age in which everybody you meet is offended about something usually about five or six things and uh, and got a long list of things what usually offends me is people getting offended over stupid stuff and then that offends me so now we're both offended so what, what next you know so uh it's a good verse to talk about getting offended and uh, not getting offended and and really what we're dealing with related to sin and transgression and how we can keep our eyes on the lord and not worry about the ticky tacky stuff that insults us or offends our sensibilities things like that so all right before we get started let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our father's blessing upon our time and his truth shall we pray heavenly father we do come before you uh, this morning, just thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth, rejoicing in the Word of God, in particular the wisdom literature that is so uh, practical and uh, reaches us in our daily life in so many different applications. Father, I thank you for the uh, eternal power that your Word contains. This is not something that was uh, written thousands of years ago and useless for us today. It is alive and powerful as it's always been, always will be. So, Father, we humble ourselves before you, we submit to your authority, and we, uh, we ask that you would open our eyes to the truth that you have for us. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, last week we were looking at main point six in the outline. If I have the right slide, maybe I don't. There we go. Concerned with political legal situations and uh, centered on verse 16, 17, and 18, the idea of gift giving, which can become a bribe if the attitude is, is such. It doesn't have to be a bribe necessarily. It might just be a generous person who likes giving gifts. And in that way, without expecting anything in return, there's still the goodwill that is engendered and the open doors that happen. So gift giving does open doors and it does make introductions. And that's, uh, that's the way it works. In fact, it's not necessarily a bribe but it does fall within the same realm of social transactions that you are giving something from you to somebody else. They are receiving it. It's freely given. It's freely received. And as such, uh, it's a marvelous opportunity because we're reflecting the grace of God. We're reflecting God's nature. God is a giver. And uh, when we become givers, we're imitators of God. And there's a, there's a blessing connected with that. And so those are the concepts that come up in verse 16 and then first impressions can be great impressions but they may not withstand follow-up scrutiny and uh, so we have in verse 17 the first to plead his case seems right 
and you read something or, or you, you listen to something and you get a first impression and somebody's making a case. Maybe it's a legal case or maybe it's a political case. Maybe it's a whatever. It's a, it's a, a theological case, uh, whatever the case may be. And if all you do is hear the, the initial presentation where they're selling you on a, on a conclusion, it may seem airtight. And you go, wow, that's amazing. And I'm sold until somebody else comes along and gives you, well, some additional considerations and what about this and what about this and they start to uh, to provide additional uh, testimony as it were and so even the best of impressions may not uh, survive uh, the follow-up scrutiny and that's uh, I think a very significant principle as well and then thirdly the idea of casting a lot putting an end to strife deciding between mighty ones it's interesting how often uh, do certain things like the Battle of Midway or other things if you, uh, we saw that movie uh, this weekend, but you know, how many battles, how many turns of history uh, just were random chance. They just happened to be one guy saw one thing and, and mentioned one thing and somebody else connected it with something else. And then, you know, and you think had that not been the circumstances, this battle would have been entirely different. Something else, you know, the world history would have been different in, uh, in, in different ways. And so whether it's by design or not, oftentimes random chance is going to settle the biggest issues. But we know that the random chance is only from our perspective as finite creatures. From God's perspective, there is no random chance. Every decision is, is His. And we saw that in uh, Proverbs 16:33. Uh, when you have faith in the Lord's sovereignty, then you leave yourself in the sovereignty of God. And that's... Uh, not to become a, a hyper-Calvinist or to become a fatalist or to become just uh, uh, saying, well, God's in control and whatever He wants done. And it's, you have that as an object of faith, but it is not uh, to just simply surrender your own volition, surrender your own decision-making process, and to remove yourself from the active participation in His will. I hope we're clear on that. Uh, that's a pagan notion where you can just surrender to the fates. You can surrender to uh, Fortuna, the goddess of luck, or you could, um, you could become a, a slave to a Ouija board and start basing your, uh, basing your decision-making process on some pagan uh, device or, or uh, token, if you will. No, we're not called to do that. And even Israel, when they would draw lots or when the high priest would use the Urim and Thummim, that was not paganism at work. That was their mechanism that the sovereign God gave them to leave themselves in the hands of God. And so it's a, it's a beautiful thing when we can do that. All right, so that's the material we looked at last week. For today, point seven, we're going to talk about the offended brother. The offended brother. I'm going to start by telling you I don't like the translation offended, but we'll, uh, we'll deal with it. We'll talk about it. It's more than just the snowflake reaction to something that bothers you, okay? The offended brother is one who has been transgressed against. He has been transgressed against. In other words, there's a transgression and you are the victim of the transgression. And these are the things we'll, we'll look at here this morning. We'll teach you a little bit of Hebrew and we'll, we'll get the concepts lined up so that we don't confuse sins with transgressions. We, and uh, we have uh, sins, iniquities, and transgressions. There's a trinity of Hebrew expressions. And they're all important. All right. What we have here is the noun for transgression or the verb for transgression. And that's what an offended brother is. And so if someone sins... They commit a sin, they commit iniquity, they commit a transgression, all three in the same thing that they're doing. 
Uh, but the, the, the sin is against God. The transgression can be against man. And uh, that transgression is going to cause fellowship issues. That transgression is going to cause, uh, it's like a betrayal. It's going to be a rebellion. It's going to carry the consequence of a broken relationship. And that's what we're talking about. More than injury to personal sensibilities. That's what happens. Personal sensibilities get injured. And when your personal sensibility gets injured, then you're offended. All right? Someone calls you fat and it it offends you. Your sensibility is injured because, uh, because whatever the case may be. Somebody calls you four eyes and name calling or whatever. The insults that happen are offensive. Or they say something that's just flat out evil about someone you love and that hurts. And so, yes, our personal sensibilities can be injured. And whoever said sticks and stones... My mother would say this, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. That's a lie. Words hurt. They can hurt, and they can hurt for a long, long time. And words can hurt for decades, where sticks and stones, you can get over that in, in, in a much shorter period of time. So this verse is not talking about personal insults. It's not talking about being offended in, uh, in that way. It's being transgressed against to the point of a broken relationship. That's what we're dealing with. Sin and transgression carries the consequence of broken relationship. And so this is why we have the issues that we have to deal with when we confess, when we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we may have occasions whereby we are confessing our sins to God, but we also have to go and reconcile with another human being based upon the transgression that has broken that relationship with that other human being the betrayal of trust for example and so um, those are the things that that we delineate related to that and if we spend the whole hour today talking about this i think it'll be an hour well spent because uh, if we haven't taught it lately then we can get rusty on it and or maybe we never had been taught it comprehensively at all so this becomes a good opportunity when david committed adultery And yet he confessed that sin to the Father. He said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in in your sight. And we read that, and that's Scripture, and that's true. And we say, all right, this is the doctrine. This is the reality. Sin is against God. The offense, however, the transgression impacts Uriah, clearly. Uh, He was the innocent party in the adultery, and then he was the murder victim. And so the offense, the transgression or if you want to talk about offended, yeah, Uriah was offended. He was offended twice with the adultery and then with the murder. See, that's what this transgression centers on. And so how do you make that right? We're told in adultery, you can't make it right. How do you you pay restitution for that? He's not going to be satisfied with anything short of your death in, uh, in those issues. All right, so here's the term that we're looking at. The term is called pasha or pashak. Make the long A, the first one, and the short A, the second one. You have Pasha. P-A-S-H-A, and then the apostrophe, and the apostrophe hooks to the left because it represents the ayin rather than the aleph. Pasha. The strongest number is 6586. And uh, did I make that text too small? 
I went slightly smaller than my usual size. So for today, if you need to scoot up a row, I don't typically go this small, but I wanted to get 7A and B on the same slide. So I squished it. I cheated by squishing this slide slightly. All right. 41 times for the verb, uh, 93 times for the noun. Now the noun, peshach, almost looks identical to the verb. Other than the little squiggly dots underneath the letters, it's the same three Hebrew radicals. It's the same uh, pe, uh, sheen, and lion. So P, S, H, lion. That's the, that's the, the three-letter radical here for peshach, or the noun is peshach, peshach. 6586 for the verb, 6588 for the noun. And if you combine the two, you've got a total of 134 uh, places to look at in the Old Testament. 134 places to look at for transgression. It also speaks of a rebellion because a nation can do this. And if a nation does this, it's not a sin necessarily, but it's a rebellion. It's a transgression against another nation. So if you have a a treaty, or if you're a subject nation, if, uh, if you're paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, and then you decide uh, you're not going to pay tribute this year because you sent your, your protection racket money, you, spent, you sent your protection money to Egypt instead of Babylon. Well, you are officially a rebel, <laughs> all right? And you have transgressed, and uh, your transgression will not be accepted by Nebuchadnezzar He's going to come and, and get you and Egypt while he's at it, because that's, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's the way nations work. All right, so we have the verb pashat and the noun peshat, and this is uh, commonly the word for transgression, and it's often linked with sin in the Old Testament. In fact, 51, in 51 out of those 134 places, uh, it, it's not sitting there by itself, it's sitting there with with sin, and sometimes it's actually about 13 times, I think, altogether, you have the, the, the full trinity of sin, transgression, and iniquity that all show up in the same verses. And so we understand that they are interrelated, they are interconnected, they are not uh, synonymous, they are not interchangeable, but they are interrelated as we understand it. The sin is against God, the offense is against man, is usually a, a simple way to, to reconcile that. But the offense, the transgression, has a consequence. The transgression uh, causes the broken fellowship, the broken relationship. And so it has to be remedied. It has to be patched over. And sometimes that's not easy to do. That's what this verse is talking about. It's easier uh, to conquer a city. (laughs) The brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city. Than a, than a fortress, right? And that's what the poetry here is telling us. And it's actually shorter than that. You'll notice as you're reading in verse 19, a brother offended, and then those words are all in italics, is harder to be won. That's an awful lot of helping words to squeeze in there, right? Is harder to be won? Well, than a strong city, because the Hebrew is simply an offended brother, a strong city. And it's, it, it puts them in, in that, in that uh, relationship. So the strong city is more than the offended brother. That's all the Hebrew says, more than. So a brother offended than a strong city. And, and we just read into that and understand the ratio, that the strong city is more, harder, worse 
uh, tougher, um, you know, a lot more work, <laughs> whatever the case. Uh, the strong city, oh, I'm sorry, the, the, the brother offended is, is the one that takes more work, trying to patch up that, that, that offense. Likewise, contentions are like the bars of a citadel. They contribute the contentions. The, the, the more contentions you, uh, you throw into the mix, the more bars you're adding to the prison cell. The more uh, you're, you're, you're strengthening the, the defenses. And so good luck uh, breaking into that. So let's uh, start with our Pesha survey as we see this. And I think you'll notice too, you're going to notice everything we're talking about whereby we have sin, we have transgression, and we have consequences. We have consequences in, uh, in these illustrations. So we start with Jacob in Genesis 31. You'll see the, uh, the uses here. 134 times, we're not going to read all 134 verses. We're going to just simply zero in on the places where we have this connection between sin and transgression. That we understand what the transgressions are. That we understand how when we are sinning against God, we're actually damaging our relationship with one another. So Genesis 31 and verse 36 Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. If we know the backstory on this, of course, is the 20 years that he ended up working there, seven years for one sister, seven years for the other sister, six more years beyond that as a hired hand. He spent a total of 20 years in, uh, in exile, not living in the land of promise. And uh, when he did leave, uh, his idol-worshiping wife stole from her dad, and so he chased after and, uh, of course, Jacob didn't know anything about that. And uh, this, is the, this, is the, this is the backstory for, for this. So Laban does a full search, doesn't find the idols, and, uh, and now Jacob is, uh, is responding to the, to the insult of being accused of being a thief. So Jacob became angry and contended with Laban, and Jacob said to Laban, What is my peshat? What is my chata'ah, my sin? that you have hotly pursued me. And they're used in tandem here. They're used in parallel. There's a transgression. There's a sin. The sin, of course, is against God. Stealing would be a sin. Uh, Not honoring your father would be a sin. There would be any number of sins that he could be accused of that he would have to uh, answer to the Lord for. But there's also this, possibly this offense, whatever this transgression is, that he would have to remedy with uh, with Laban. So what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. And so this this transgression, the fact is, it has to be remedied. It has to be dealt with. And he's going to de- deal with it right here and now. And uh, between my kinsmen and your kinsmen, notice uh, that the transgression has left this, this us versus you adversarial uh, thing. You know, aren't they all pretty much the same kinsmen anyway? Wasn't that the point with going to get a wife from among Abraham's kinsmen? And he's been living there for 20 years and they've got, uh, got very busy with those four wives and got a lot of children at this point. 
And uh, nevertheless, my kinsmen versus your kinsmen. When, when this kind of damage is done, now you know, the, the line is drawn, and, and, and which side are you on? That happens with um, transgressions, family transgressions. Anyway, um, he recounts these 20 years I have been with you and recounts the benefit that, that he's been, that Laban has been under blessing by association because of Joseph's, not Joseph, Jacob's uh, work and, uh, and these different things. Anyway, it's a good start to this concept. Let's go over to chapter 50. They finally settled their uh, differences by building a pillar and agreeing to never cross. <laughs> you stay on your side of the line, you stay on your side of the line. All right. Like Bill Cosby and his brother fighting about the, which side of the bed was theirs and, you know, you quit touching me kind of thing. And Dad comes in with a belt. All right. Genesis 50. And um, touched on this actually in the Hebrews class Sunday morning. Uh, at the death of Jacob, uh, all of his brothers thought that they were doomed. They thought that uh, Joseph was going to uh, take revenge now that uh, the father was gone, that he was, had freedom now to go ahead and, and, uh, and murder them all. And so um, they sent a message to Joseph in verse 16 saying, Your father charged us before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you, for, for they did you wrong. Notice there's two expressions there. The transgression is the Peshach, and then there's the Hebrew sin, the Chetah, the sin. And uh, the sin, of course, is against the Lord and has to be dealt with before the Lord, but the transgression is against the brothers, or against him when they threw him down a well and then sold him to the slavers and packed him off to Egypt. So uh, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Now he can't forgive the sin, only God can forgive sin, but he can forgive the transgression, plural, or I guess I hear it singular, of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And this is where he has the chance to teach them Romans 8, 28, and all things work together for good, and they meant it for evil, but God used it for good, and we saw that, uh, we saw that Sunday morning. But nevertheless, this is a good illustration of how transgression is different from sin. Transgression drives a wedge between people, and that has to be remedied. If there's an offense, then that needs to be forgiven. You want to clear that up. You want to go and seek that forgiveness. You want to make amends. You want to pay restitution, whatever it takes. And say, I have transgressed. I have offended you. How do I restore that fellowship? How do I make this right? You know, I know I threw you down a well. I know I sold you into slavery. I know you were, you were a prisoner for 12 years. And, and uh, how can you possibly forgive me? <laughs> That's what the brothers are saying here. All right. Two, those are the two examples, the clear, easy ones to spot there from Genesis. Let's go to Leviticus. Leviticus 16. In some cases, it's hard, especially a brother. The ach, the brother. Because the ones that are closest to you are the ones that can hurt you more than any. 
and uh, that's the that's the blessing of intimacy, is that uh, you have the the uh, the blessings, but then you also have the capacity for tremendous harm and tremendous uh, hurt. So Leviticus sixteen. And boy, Day of Atonement. There's a lot of doctrine in this chapter, but let's just zoom in. Um, verse 15 says, He shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering. This is what the, the high priest does here on the Day of Atonement. He, will, he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Notice, they're both in view. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. So both are involved, the transgressions and the sins. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place to uh, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. He shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on its, all its sides. Um, verse 19, with his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it, and from the impurities of the sons of Israel, consecrate it. Verse 20, when he finishes atoning for the holy place, and the tent, a meeting, and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Verse 21, remember there was a, anyway, I don't want to get lost in this. The, um, there's, there's, a, there's a two goat procedure, the one that dies, and the one that lives, right? And because you, you can't, kill a goat and then resurrect it, you've got to have, have two goats to tell the picture of Jesus. <laughs> the goat that dies, the goat that lives. Jesus is both. Okay? He died, he came back to life, he removed our sins. But if you're going to illustrate that, you need two goats. All right. Aaron shall lay both, verse 21, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. So this, this verse has all three of the words that, uh, that the Old Testament details because it has iniquities, it has transgressions, and it has sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And so they're taken. They're gone. Iniquities, sins, transgressions, they're all removed. So the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So here's the doctrine. This is what was taught. This is what was taught in the Day of Atonement. This is foundational. This is all a picture of our Savior, of course, and what He accomplishes. But there's twin issues to address in, in terms of transgressions and sins. Joshua 24. Say, so I know that one. Joshua 24. I got... I have that on my refrigerator. I have that on my welcome mat on the front porch. Everybody knows that Joshua 24 is the choose, choose you this day whom you will serve. But believe it or not, there's more than one verse in the chapter. 
But that's the context. You are correct. That's the context here. At the end of the conquest, as Joshua's um, giving us, he's getting ready to die, and he's he's um, giving them the farewell message here. The um, let's see here. Verse 14 says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. You know, they brought idols with them out of Egypt. Carried them around for all those years in the wilderness. They still have them after the conquest. It is, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which are beyond the river were the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And who did these great signs in our, uh, in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. So, okay, good words, I like it. (laughs) Then verse 19, Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. Now there's Understand what he's saying here. They, they're talking a good game, but he knows, <laughs> he knows them and how long they've been carrying these idols around. And he says, here's the issue. He's a jealous God. That when you sin against him, you're also transgressing. You are breaking that relationship. He is jealous. His holiness, his righteousness, his glory, he doesn't share it with another. And when you worship your idol, yes, it's a sin. It's also a transgression. So they're both used here in this, uh, in this verse. That's why it's called adultery, spiritual adultery, when you serve other gods. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done good to you. Remember, they're under the conditional Mosaic covenant at this point. The people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve Him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Why have you not gotten rid of them yet? Why why do I have to tell you two times, three times, four times, you still have them? So it's the problem there. All right, so that's our Pentateuch survey. How about, um, that's Joshua. How about Psalm 32? And we see this in daily life. We see this in personal life. The Psalms are very uh, applicable to all believers of all times, every dispensation. It starts off with how happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Right there from verse 1. Notice what you got? Both words, transgression and sin. 
In uh, David's case, though, he's not a New Testament believer. He's an Old Testament believer. He's not living after the cross where sins are removed. He's living before the cross when sins are covered. The Hebrew kafar, which speaks of a covering. But still, it's a happy thing to have, and you want to be saved. So uh, the asherah of how blessed it is, it's how happy he is. Um, he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And so this is the consequence for a believer, someone who should know better, someone who's, uh, who's saved, whose sins and transgressions have been dealt with positionally, but you're still experientially conducting yourself in these things. You've got to confess. You've got, you don't have to get saved again, but you have to confess. So confess your sins. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to stay silent. Don't try to act like uh, you're, you're all innocent when you know you're guilty and God knows you're guilty, so confess it. So he said, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Again, there's the triple play right there with not only sins and transgressions, but also iniquity. You forgave the guilt of my sin. And this is what we do when we, when we rebound. When we do 1 John 1, 9, we're confessing our sins and uh, our iniquities, our transgressions. We're naming them before the Lord so He can restore us to fellowship. All right, so that's uh, Psalm 32. Psalm 51. This is the confession after the Bathsheba episode. The Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Notice, plural. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so part of when we break this down is, again, the sin is against God. Uriah doesn't have the absolute standard of righteousness. <laughs> you know, sin is what falls short of the glory of God. God is the only one with the absolute eternal standard of righteousness. And so you can transgress against a human being, you can't sin against a human being because they're, they're not the absolute standard of righteousness. God is. All sin is against God. Transgressions can be against God and man. So he says, um, you are justified when you speak, blameless when you judge. He's the standard of righteousness and justice. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. This is total depravity. In Adam we're born as sinners. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You don't need to get saved again. You can't get saved again. Once you're saved, you're always saved. You only get saved once. But once you're saved and when you're confessing your sins, this is what happens. You get the cleansing process. 
You get the foot washing instead of the bath, as, as the Lord explained it to Peter. You only need the bath once, but you need the foot washing again and again and again. So he says, uh, make me to hear in joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. <laughs> Boy, is that metaphoric or literal there? I mean, God deals with us. And the longer we, we think we can hide it, he went nine months thinking he'd covered his tracks until that baby was born. Nine months before he confessed. You wonder, how many broken bones did he get in the meantime? What, what was the other consequences? So he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And that too, I, I pay a lot of attention to that. And I think about that. So we have the cleansing, but then the second part of verse 10 when he says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, if you've had prolonged time in carnality, you're not going to be ready just to be restored to fellowship and like that and become a super grace believer the next day. You know, you're going to need that steadfast spirit. It's going to take time. It's going to be take time. You know, it's like if you're a, d- a distance runner and you've, you've built up your, your, uh, your endurance in running and you've done, but then you get away from it for a time. And, and uh, you know, then you decide, hey, I'm going to pick it back up again. Well, do you think you're going to run that marathon on day one when you've been away from it for so long? Maybe you should work to, to get back there again. And so this verse is saying, renew a steadfast spirit within me, I think means you're surrendering your, your uh, volition to Him, you're surrendering your spirit to Him, you want Him to uh, provide the, provide the a willing spirit when it says, notice in uh, verse 12, uh, sustain me with a willing spirit. You know, right now, Father, I've got, I'm speaking about a, you know, reversionistic believer who's just now at this point of repentance. In those early days, he's going to be pretty weak. You're going to be pretty fragile. And uh, so when you're asking me, sustain me with a willing spirit, give me the, give me that volition I don't really have at the moment. Help uh, overcome this so I can get in this pattern. I can get back in this thought process. I can get solid again. Of course, we don't have to worry about losing the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 11 is not a bother for us. As church-age saints, we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But Old Testament saints could, could lose the Holy Spirit and never get it back again for the rest of their life. And David is pleading, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Notice that? And sinners, different from transgressors. Of course, you do both at the same time, but still, these terms are put in parallel here. Transgressors and sinners, they need to be taught, they need to be converted. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. So there's both expressions right there. They're used in tandem because they're not pure synonyms, they're related, but we want to understand the distinctions. And if, in fact, we have transgressed against our brother and our brother has been offended, then the work we've got in front of us to, to try to restore that could be a very tough road. We might, uh, we're going to find that it's, it's easier to go conquer a city somewhere. <laughs> a fortified palace somewhere would be an easier chore than overcoming this brother that I've offended. Or a spouse. The closest relationship of all. 
All right. You know, and we, we think about these things. We think about the sins. We think about the forgiveness. We think about the consequences. Just because we're forgiven doesn't mean the consequences don't continue on. David was forgiven when he confessed, but he had consequences for the rest of his life. And his children faced consequences for his sins. Uh, and it's, uh, this is what happens. And, and uh, if you're trying to restore a broken relationship, well, that trust that takes years to build can, can be broken in a moment, and then it takes years to rebuild, if ever. It can be a tough thing to rebuild once that trust is broken. All right, so that's what we look at there. Verse um, Psalm 59 and verse 3. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity. Save me from men of bloodshed. Behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. And so uh, there you have it. Again, that tandem of sin with uh, transgression. Isaiah 43. Not just the Psalms, the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah. Isaiah 43. So, uh, All right, so here is a message against Israel and a rebuke against uh, their uh, uh, rebellion. The judgment against Babylon that comes here in verses 14 and following. And yet it's interesting. Um, Verse 20 says, The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the deserts to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I have formed for myself will declare my praise. And yet, Israel so often didn't have the grace recognition that a billy goat would have, or an ostrich, or a jackal. They, they failed to identify the God that so faithfully provided for them. He says in verse 22, Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob, but you have become weary of me, O Israel. When you get tired of doctrine, you get tired of the Lord, you get uh, Bible class becomes ho-hum, and uh, whatever else. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. (laughs) Anyway. So uh, not good to be in this circumstance. Verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. He's not doing this for them. He's doing this for him, for his own sake, for his unconditional covenant with Abraham, for his integrity is how he's operating. I, even I, the I am, I only I, we could say, 
None of the idols, none of the false gods. God and God alone is the unique creator, redeemer, sovereign of the universe. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Over to Isaiah 53. The suffering servant. We know this one, right? I read this one a lot during communion and um, how he was a lamb and he took our place. The Lord was pleased to crush him. And uh, how does this psalm, or how does this uh, chapter close? As he's victorious, as he does the work. So verse 10 says, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he bears their iniquities. So there's that term, there's the iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Isn't that beautiful? Does that take on a new, kind of a new sense for you now that you're, you're kind of keyed in now to the differences between the sins and the transgressions, transgressions? He's forgiving them for crucifying Him. He's forgiving them for beating Him because they transgressed against Him. But of course they were sinning against God. In fact, the whole world had sinned against God. And He's on the cross doing the work to not only pay, make atonement, for the sins, but he's also forgiving the very crucifiers for his crucifixion, for their transgression against him. It's a neat thing. And it's portrayed here 700 years BC by the prophet Isaiah. (laughs) 700 years before he goes to the cross. And Isaiah is talking about it. It's a glorious thing. It's a chapter, by the way, which your typical Jewish friend knows nothing about. Never read it, never had it taught to him, never seen it, doesn't know it's even in his Bible. But it's in his Bible. It's a powerful thing. How about Daniel Unasi, uh, Jeremiah 33.8. More prophecy. Here's uh, Jeremiah in jail. Not the most popular fellow. In fact, the king hates him. The Jewish people hate him. He keeps speaking truth. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time while he was still confined in the court of the guard, saying, thus says the Lord. This is uh, Jeremiah 33, verse 1 and 2. Um, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you. I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah which are broken down to make a defense against the siege ramps and against the sword. Anyway, they're surrounded. They're going to be destroyed. And here's what he's telling them. Um, 
Verse 5, while they are coming to fight with the Chaldeans and to fill them with the corpses of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my wrath, I have hidden my face from this city because of all their wickedness. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them. I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel. I will rebuild them as they were at first. So they have a future, even though the present is doomed. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. Again, all three of the terms, iniquity, sin, transgression, right here. Requires cleansing, requires forgiveness, but there's consequences. And the consequences in Jeremiah's day is the destruction and the captivity for 70 years. Then they can be restored. Today, um, they're waiting for second advent to be restored. All right, Daniel 9 and verse 24. And you know, it's a prophecy, and we study it a lot because we want to know the timeline. There's 70 weeks, 77s, and we want to work out the math, and we want to figure out the decree, and we want to figure out the triumphal entry and the crucifixion, and we know that there's one seven left. The future tribulation hasn't happened yet. There's one seven-year period left. And we get lost in all of the, the, the details of the prophecy, and we forget the, the very first verse that opens this up, and that shows God's purpose in this. Seventy sevens, seventy weeks, or septads, periods of seven years. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Is that the Jews? Is that the church? It's not the church. Your people, Daniel, are the Jews. And your holy city, Daniel, is Jerusalem. Remember, this is the Lord talking to Daniel. So your people, your holy city is the Jewish people and Jerusalem. It has nothing to do with the church. Now notice, what's the purpose here? 77s, and what's it going to do? To finish the transgression. To finish the Peshach. To make an end of sin. Chata. To make atonement for iniquity. Laon. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Tzaddik. To seal up vision and prophecy. Remember um, in the second advent when the Holy Spirit descends and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Prophecy at the second advent of Jesus Christ. And to anoint the most holy place. How much of that's been done already today in the first 69 sevens? None of it. None of it. It's waiting the 70th seven. It's waiting the tribulation. It's waiting the second advent of Jesus Christ. None of this is fulfilled by the church, in the church, has anything to do with the church. This is all for your people in your holy city. But there's transgression, sin, and iniquity that has to be atoned for and dealt with. So, well, wasn't that done? Didn't Jesus do that on the cross? Yes and no. The blood was shed, but when was it ever applied to the nation of Israel? When was it ever accounted to their account? 
Remember, killing the animal is only part of it. Then you've got to take the blood, and then you have to apply it where it goes. It has not yet been applied to the nation of Israel, not till the second advent of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's been shed. Fully admit, it's been shed. Jesus said, this is the blood of the covenant which is shed for you. The blood's been shed, but not yet applied to the nation that's rejected him. It will be applied to Israel in the second advent. So 77s, and it has transgression, sin, and iniquity. Isn't that something? Micah chapter 6. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah chapter 6. I missed Amos, Obadiah. There it is. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So we have um, transgressions, we have sin. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? These are the principles. It's not religion. It's not getting all religious and bringing sacrifices and following a ritual and, and going to church and giving money and singing hymns. And it's, it's the walking humbly with your God. To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. All right. The uh, in verse seven, the rebellious acts is the transgressions. That's the that's the peshach in verse seven, and then the chata is the sin of my soul. Both used there in that verse. So when we talk about the offended brother. This is, not, this is more than just being insulted. This is more than just being offended. This is more than just being triggered by some goofy thing that's got you all hot and bothered in your personality. Is This is a transgression that has left you as the offended party whereby the relationship is broken. And uh, their sin is before the Lord and they confess their sin and they're back in fellowship. And that's fine and dandy for their sake before the Lord, but for your sake... You still have the injury. You still have the offense. You still have the broken relationship. And now you've got an issue. How do we deal with that? <laughs> How do we, what's our attitude then? We say, all right, Lord, you forgave them. And I should forgive them also, but I'm struggling. I should have the same attitude you have, but I've been hurt. I've been offended. How can we make this right? How can I release my claim on this injury? Because as, uh, as God in Christ has forgiven me, I'm supposed to forgive one another and I'm struggling to obey that command. How do I do this? I've been an injured party and I'm finding this difficult. Isn't there a city I can go conquer somewhere? That seems easier. <laughs> no. All right. Well, then I have to, I can't do it myself. My human effort is not going to do it. It's going to be by grace through faith. It's going to be the same way I've been saved. The same uh, as I receive Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. 
And only by grace through faith can I release this, uh, this offense. You know, I mean, it's more blessed to give than to receive. A lot of times it is a lot easier to ask forgiveness than to give forgiveness when, uh, when you're the party that's been injured, when you're the one that's been, been cheated on, you're the one that's been betrayed, you're the one that's been hurt. And I love the fact that our Scripture uh, is so real about describing what our, what our human walk is all about and that our Savior knows this. He went through this. He was man of sorrows acquainted with grief like one from whom men hid their face. He knows every attack we'll ever experience and He experienced it. And so we have this. All right, next week we'll come back and we're going to look at the contention the contention. What happens when we don't forgive? What happens when the transgression is not remedied? When it just leads to fighting and more fighting and more fighting? The contention. The judging and division of those who ought not be contended with. And uh, Proverbs has a lot to say. There's 13 passages in Proverbs that all deal with contention. In fact, that's almost all the uses. I think there's only 16 in the whole Bible. Yeah, there's 16 in the Old Testament, 13 of them. Are in, uh, are in Proverbs. So we should be able to overcome any contentions uh, if we humble ourselves and use the Word of God. Okay, But I can't teach it in two minutes, so we'll, uh, we'll stop it here. Thank you for your faithfulness, Father. Thank you for this class. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see in ourselves and the things we do, the uh, sins and the transgressions. That we'd be mindful, Father, of our need to uh, confess and be restored to fellowship deal with the sins as we deal with, we've always done with deal with the sins but also the transgressions father and how do we remedy that with the transgressed party and uh, open our eyes to see the uh, necessity of this the uh, opportunities for this um, just be at work father we can live this out in a way that glorifies your son and i thank you father in jesus christ's name amen